Today's scripture reading comes from Galatians chapter 1, verses 11, through chapter 2, verses 10. Listen now for the word of the Lord. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, now how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles... I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other, other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you, before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that, were, that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He used to persecute us, is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went again, up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who had seemed influential, the gospel that I had proclaimed among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were, were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential and added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that, had, that was given to me, they had give, gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord be with you. Uh, Welcome. Uh, I want to say I'm I'm a little concerned because um, after the comments I made last week, um, I think I made some of you a little extra paranoid. Uh, I got a lot of uh, texts and emails this week with all kinds of interesting exclamation points. So um, <laughs> I, I didn't mean to um, overdo it, but um, I assure you, I, I take no offense if you use periods to complete sentences, and I will continue to do the same. 
Uh, I also want to alert you that uh, we're continuing to have our Sunday morning Bible study uh, in that room over there um, through the Gospel of Mark. And so uh, I want to invite you all to come. Uh, next week, uh, we will not meet because of the uh, retreat next weekend. Uh, however, the podcast, there will be new podcasts uh, this week as well as next uh, on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. So uh, I encourage you to uh, look those up. Uh, let's pray together. Uh, Lord, thank you again for this day that you have made. And um, we want to hear again uh, from you, uh, from your word. Uh, help us now to uh, receive what you would have for us. Uh, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So this is now the uh, second sermon in a series of sermons I'll be preaching through the letter uh, of Paul to the churches in Galatia. And I said last week that Paul deviates from the standard letter format uh, because he's so concerned about what's going on things that he's heard that's going on in these churches that they have so quickly abandoned what he calls the one true gospel. And so in the first 10 verses, he asserted his authority as an apostle and made the argument that there is only one true gospel and that if anyone says otherwise, whether him or even angels were to say otherwise, they are to be cursed. No distortion no deviation, no addition to the gospel, the singular, exclusive gospel of Jesus Christ is to be tolerated by the churches. And so today's reading, uh, Paul is going to continue to make this case, uh, this time reiterating God's, uh, the gospel's utter independence from human sources. And so he's going to make a twofold argument to show that the gospel that he preached or the gospel that he gospeled is not the gospel of human beings, but that it is received by revelation, and that is going to be his testimony. So his twofold argument goes like this. So the first part of it is, he says that it makes no sense that he would voluntarily become a slave of Christ by showing his life story. If the gospel were something good that he might have sort of uh, studied and entered into for his advantage, then maybe that makes sense. But as he tells his life story very briefly, he says, it makes absolutely no sense that I would do this. He used to persecute Christians. That's what he says. He was a zealous Pharisee. And the idea of a crucified Messiah made no sense to him. Passages like Deuteronomy 21-23 stated, Accursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Jesus was crucified or hung that is impaled on a tree. He was accursed. It's ridiculous for anyone to think that that could possibly be the Messiah of God. And yet, Paul went from one who denied that Jesus could possibly be the Messiah the Son of God, to one who claimed that Jesus, in fact, is the Messiah and the Son of God. And so what changed for him? Well, he says in verses 15 and 16, that God had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his Son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. The way Paul makes sense of this, in fact, the only way that he can make sense of it 
is that God called him by his grace. That's the only explanation he can offer. Maybe some of you came to the faith by reasoning your way through it. Maybe you studied religions. Um, maybe you studied the Bible. Maybe you went through some you know, debates with your friends and all of that. But not for Paul. What we think of Paul's sort of uh, conversion story on the road to Damascus, Paul understands as a prophetic call. God called him. God was pleased to reveal his son to him. That's the only reason. And God did it for the purposes that God had for him. And Paul uses these phrases uh, that echo the prophetic calls of the prophets Jeremiah and Isaiah. Jeremiah 1, for example, begins, Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Right? That's exactly what Paul says. Isaiah 49. Now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be a servant, he says, I will make you as a light to the nations. And so Paul sees himself within this prophetic tradition. Like Jeremiah and Isaiah, God called him from before his birth to be a prophet to the nations or to the Gentiles. In other words, it is entirely the work and the will of God. Paul had nothing to do with it. God chose him before he was born. God elected him by his grace. It is not something Paul chose for himself. It is not something that he studied. You know, it wasn't a, a bold career move or anything like that. It's entirely in accordance with God's will and God's grace. That's the case that he's making. You know, I, I know that sometimes people um, come to Christ because their life is a mess. Sometimes people are searching for meaning in their life and they find God, or, or maybe more correctly we should say are found by God. Sometimes people are at the end of their rope and God becomes their, their last desperate plea. Sometimes people see the lives of other Christians and it's just a beautiful, joyful thing. And so they're, they're, they want to learn more about that and they become Christians that way. So, so I know that people come to Christ and to faith uh, through a variety of ways. But that's not what happens with Paul. And I think this is really important for us to remember. Paul was not unsatisfied in any way with his life or with his faith. He, he was very happy. He was quite content in the life that he was living. He says, verse 14, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Right? He, he was living the faith. He was living the faith. And as far as you know, he understood the faith, he was, he was doing great. He was advancing. So why did he start preaching Christ and Christ crucified? Someone that he was persecuting. And Paul says, the only explanation I have the only thing I can say is because God called me. There's, you just can't make sense of it otherwise. Um, I think this is one of the most truthful and powerful testimonies that you can have. It's truthful because, you know, we're, we're all called. It may not be so quite, you know, dramatic as maybe Paul talks about it, but we're all called. We all come to faith by the calling of God. And it's also very powerful because for someone who is successful, someone who's, you know, who appears to be fine, and someone who's antagonistic to the Christian faith, for them to all of a sudden, for no apparent reason, to turn to God, really points to the work of God. There's, there's no other explanation, right? Imagine today something equivalent in the political realm. 
Imagine if someone like Sean Hannity became the spokesman for Alexandria Cortez Ocasio. Or imagine Beto O'Rourke becoming the president of the NRA. Ben Shapiro become the leader of the Black Lives Matter movement. Or Elizabeth Warren become the head of President Trump's cabinet. Like, you can't imagine that, right? Why would that happen? It makes no sense. I mean, it's got to be the ultimate sellout, lunacy, or at least in Paul's case, maybe it's the work of God. That's, that's what he's pointing to. And, and I have to tell you, um, one of the most memorable experiences that I've had with this uh, was when I was in college. Um, I know some of you have heard me uh, tell this story before. Um, when I was in college, my, my church attendance was, was a little spotty. Uh, my freshman year, I did go every week to a uh, Baptist church. So there's my Baptist roots. Uh, my sophomore year, I kind of bounced around to all kinds of churches. I went to churches that were super, super liberal, never mentioned Jesus kinds of churches, to uh, black, charismatic, praise till you're sweating, till you drop churches. Um, and then in my junior year, I didn't really go uh, for about a semester. Uh, and then in the second semester, I started attending a Korean church. Um, the church had hired a new pastor, a relatively young guy, and he would come to our campus to lead a Bible study. Uh, so I attended that, and you know, I, I liked him. And so when he asked me to uh, come to his church and help him with his youth group, I foolishly said yes. Um, I was so in over my head, I cannot begin to tell you. But I tell you what it did for me. Um, it, for me, set a very, very low bar for ministry. It set a very, very low bar for youth ministry. Uh, I was a committed Christian at the time, but I had no idea how to lead, and especially how to lead a youth group. Uh, when the pastor told me to come and help him with the youth group, what he meant was, we don't have anybody else, there are no teachers, you're it. And I can tell you, uh, I did an absolutely horrible job. I did. I was just absolutely terrible. Uh, what made it really, really terrible uh, was not only my own incompetence, but there was a girl in middle school who absolutely terrorized me. <laughs> Let's just call her Laura for the sake of this uh, story. So I had to lead worship, and I didn't know how to play guitar, so I had to play uh, piano. Now, I, I had a few lessons, and if you've, you know, so I would, during the week, learn like two songs that I could try to lead on Sunday, and of course, if you've ever heard me sing, you know how nervous I get if I have to lead singing, and I can barely play, I can barely sing, and so I'm, I'm like sweating because I got to lead this group of uh, youth group kids. And, uh, and of course, my first note is off. I miss play notes. You know, it's, it's terrible. And Laura, of course, she just starts to laugh out loud. <laughs> and so then I get more nervous. I play worse. I sing more out of tune. Uh, then I have to give the message. And again, you know, uh, back then, I, I was just terrified. I mean, terrified, shaking in my boots of public speaking. And so I get there to speak. I have no confidence. And so I'll, you know, I'll misspeak some things. Um, and every time I said something wrong or something that I, you know, I didn't speak cleanly or I got stuck or something, 
again, Laura would just, just laugh out loud. And sometimes if I said something that she really didn't like, she would just challenge me like, that's not right. You know, and I, I don't know what to do, right? Um, when she got bored with the service, she would fold the, uh, the bulletin and like just throw airplanes around or make balls and toss them around. Um, once, when we were collecting offering, instead of putting money into the basket, she took money out of the basket. And then she went across the street to like a, a convenience store with a couple of her friends and you know, bought some candies or something. I, mean, I, I was in so much shock. I just stood there and she just kind of walked out. <laughs> I had no idea what to do. So I mean, eventually she came back and then you know, eventually I threatened her and I tell your parents and so she you know, gave the money back and all that. But like, I, I just, I had no, and so I mean, Saturday night, I mean, I, I, I had so much anxiety about going to church. And um, this was somebody who, you know, just was terrible, really a, a terrible human being. Um, so um, I, I left that church after one semester, not because of her, although it may seem that way to, uh, to a lot of folks. Um, she was not looking for God. She had no interest in God. I mean, she was there because, you know, her parents brought her. She thought her life was fine. I mean, she was, she was popular, you know, and, and she got along with the other kids. And, in fact, the other kids thought she was great, you know. Um, and I could not imagine that she would ever become a Christian. You know, if you had asked me, like, who are the three people who will never become Christian, she would have been on the top of my list. Right? I was absolutely sure of it. I would have bet you large sums of money that she would not become a Christian. But then, of course, what happens? You know, a funny thing happened when she went to college. She became a Christian. A mutual friend of mine called me one day out of the blue and told me that he had bumped into her at a, at a retreat. And, of course, in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, must have been a terrible retreat. That poor speaker, you know. Um, but then he goes on to tell me that she had become a Christian. And in those days, you know, I responded with, you know, no way. And he came back with way. That's the way we used to talk. And um, he said that she had become a Christian and that she had told him that if he ever saw me, to make sure that he tells me that she was sorry for what she put me through <laughs> when she was in youth because she just didn't understand. And, like, I don't know, like for me, that's Paul. How does that happen? You know, maybe something happened in her life that, like, just made her think about the faith. But as far as I know, and from what I heard, there was nothing. It's just one day she just sort of, she just got it. She just got it. That's another way of saying God called her by grace. And again, in truth, that's how it happens for all of us. It happens that way for all of us. Now, again, it may not be quite so dramatic. But every one of us comes to faith by the call of God. And that's what Paul experienced. He cannot explain his preaching of the gospel in any other way. It's the absolute will and the absolute grace of God. So, so that's one part of his argument. The second part of his argument is that he's saying, you know, it's given by revelation. I couldn't have made this up because I didn't see anyone after I received the gospel. After I got the revelation of the gospel, he says, I went into Arabia. Um, I know maybe for us, you know, when we think of Arabia, we think of deserts. Uh, maybe we think of Saudi Arabia or the Arabian Peninsula. But in the biblical uh, Arabia, 
it's, it's, a, it's a smaller territory, and it had people. It had towns and cities. Damascus uh, is, a, is a part of that. And Paul went there because that's where the Gentiles were. That's where he went to preach. It wasn't to, you know, go off in solitude for three years to, to meditate by himself or anything like that. He went there because that's where he could preach to the Gentiles because that's the call that he received. And we get some idea of some of the things that he did there because he says uh, in 2 Corinthians 11, he tells about how one time when he was in Damascus, the king, who was the, the ruler of Arabia, was guarding the city in order to, to catch Paul, and he had to be let down in, in a basket to, to escape uh, from the city. And so that's what he was doing. He's just preaching the gospel. And so his point he's trying to make is that he got the call, and he couldn't have learned it because he went into Arabia, he was preaching the gospel, and it wasn't until three years later that he finally met up with the others, like Peter uh, and James, who were preaching the gospel. And then again, he says, you know, I met them, but he says it was only for 15 days. He wants to make sure that, you know, it was, it was just a brief amount of time. And the fact that he only met with two of the apostles, the two of the recognized apostles, tells us that, you know, they probably still didn't want to talk to him. 15 days means there were at least two, if not three Sabbaths that he was there. And so you would think that they would have at least all gone to synagogue together. But he says, no, I only talked with Peter and, and with James, the Lord's brother. So they're, they're probably still suspicious of him. So after that brief trip, he goes back to uh, the regions of, of Syria, of uh, Cilicia. Uh, that's where his hometown, uh, Tarsus, um, is. And, and he goes back to, to preaching again. And he does this for a decade. So he, he's just saying, listen, yeah, I met with a couple of the apostles, but I was preaching long before it. And I was preaching long after it, and I really didn't, it's not from them. It's not something that they taught me. It's not something that I learned from them. It's something that was given to me by the revelation of God. So that's his argument about why this is so important. And then he gets to the, the, the crux of the issue, and that is this matter of circumcision. There were some... Uh, in, in Paul's day, in Paul's group, among the early Christians, you know, they all kind of might be in agreement, okay, Jesus is the Son of God, he is the Messiah, he was crucified, he died, and he rose from the dead. They, they were in agreement with that, with, with what we might think of as the core of the gospel. But then there were others, because remember, everyone sort of came out of the Jewish faith here now in the beginning. Some people said, well, that's fine, we believe that, but, but you also have to enter into and embrace the practices of our Jewish faith. You have to eat kosher foods, you have to keep the Sabbath, and you have to get circumcised as a mark of your commitment into the Jewish faith. And Paul says, no, that's, that's not, you're not getting the point here, right? Now today, I know that we think of um, circumcision uh, as a simple medical procedure, um, its benefits and risks are, are still debated. Uh, but in the Greco-Roman world, circumcision was considered a barbaric mutilation of the body. It's, it's terrible. It, it was physically distasteful, but it was also considered morally repugnant because it made it, made it seem like, you know, the... Sorry to get a little graphic here. It made it seem like men were just, you know, always aroused or something. And so it was just looked down upon by 
the non-Jewish people in the Greco-Roman world. It was so despised that very few men converted to Judaism. Most of the converts were women. Most of the men never became full members, but instead became what they called God-fearers because this was so abhorrent, and they didn't want to enter uh, into that. And um, the few men that actually did convert and did get circumcision, uh, they they were just mocked. They were were shamed. Uh, They were considered sexual deviants. Um, And, you know, the slang, the the word for circumcised was a slang that they used uh, to, to insult them because that's how poorly it was looked at, looked at. And so it's a, it's a big deal how the church handles this now, right? You can imagine some people would have said to Paul, Paul, you know, you're watering down the gospel. You're saying people just have to believe in Jesus and, and that's it? You don't have to do anything? I mean, that, that's not right. And Paul says, yeah, that, that is right. That's, that's the gospel. That's what grace is about. That's what grace is about. And, and they just didn't get it. For Paul, if you add anything, if you do anything, it diminishes what the gospel is all about. God and Jesus Christ made a decisive act, a, a decision in which nothing else now is, is going to matter. And Paul says, you're, you're trying to add to this, and you can't do that. Because now you're taking away from the work of God, from the grace of God. And again, this, this idea of grace is so foreign. It's so hard to believe. It really is just about the hardest thing to believe. Because it, none of it, we so rarely experience it, if ever. And, and it's usually we experience it um, in a wrong sort of way. You know, I was reading about um, uh, Billy Graham the other day. And he tells a story. And he actually, Billy Graham was trying to explain grace and he gave this illustration. He said that um, one time he was driving and he was speeding. He got caught and he had to go to traffic court. And so he went to traffic court and the judge said, you know, uh, Mr. Graham, uh, were you speeding? And Billy Graham said, yes, your honor, I was speeding. And uh, he says, well, the ticket here says you were 10 miles over the speed limit. Is that right? And Billy Graham said, yes, that's, that's correct. And so the judge says, well, um, 10 miles over the speed limit, so I'm going to fine you. Uh, $10, $1 for every mile you're over the speed limit. That was a lot of money back then. So he's, he's guilty, he admitted his guilt, and the judge was going to punish him with this fine. And Billy Graham, you know, he accepted it because he knew or he admitted that he was guilty. As Billy Graham uh, grabbed his wallet to, to pay the fine, the judge said, wait a minute. And the judge pulled out his own wallet. He paid the $10 fine. And then he took Billy Graham out for a steak dinner. And Billy Graham said, that's grace. (laughs) Now, I read that, and I said, no, that is not grace. That is absolutely not grace. It's hard for me to disagree with Billy Graham, but that's, that's wrong. The reason you got favor was because you're Billy Graham. If I was there, I would have had to pay the $10 fine. The judge didn't give you grace. Right? He treated him because of his reputation of because who he is. He earned it. That's not grace. Grace is you you don't deserve it. The judge doesn't know who you are, doesn't care who you are, and still takes you out 
for that steak dinner. That's great. Like, that, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. And that's what Paul is saying. This is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And said, no, that can't be right. Let's, let's add circumcision. But Paul says, you know, it's no longer needed. And the thing about the argument that Paul makes here is his case, his argument is so strong because Paul was one of those guys who kept the law. I mean, he was an exemplary keeper of the law. If, if the gospel was the gospel message plus all these things that you have to do, he would have been number one on the list, right? So it's not like, oh, I couldn't do it, so I want to get rid of it. He would have been great at it. But he says it's completely useless. God's intervention made a break with the law and a return to that law just makes no sense. And so Paul says, after this meeting, they all agreed that I was right, not in so many words, and they all agreed to affirm each other in their particular ministry. So that they're affirming their particular uh, ministry strategy. So Paul's going to go to the Gentiles, just like Peter is going to go to the Jews. And so according to this, and according to the parallel report in Acts 15, they all agreed that there is to be no requirement for circumcision. And they conclude their meetings with Paul receiving the right hand of fellowship, a recognition. Now this is not just uh, like church politics or compromise. It's the recognition, notice it says, recognizing the grace. They recognize the grace that was given, that was evident. And so they're, they're recognizing that God is at work and they're affirming God's work in each other's lives and ministries. I, I just want to make one quick reflection with you today about this passage. You know, I think the thing that the, the Galatians were wondering, and maybe you're wondering, why should we believe Paul, that he alone has this, the one true gospel? Why, why should we believe anyone about anything, really, but about the gospel? Right? Paul, by his own admission, persecuted the church. He, he was never one of Jesus' disciples. He never got to meet him, you know, sort of in a regular way. Never, you know, argued with him. He never witnessed firsthand the miracles that Jesus performed, anything like that. He didn't see the crucifixion. Right? That, that's the same for us. We're in the same boat. So Paul's testimony, like our testimony, rests on the revelation that he received and that we received. Our testimony rests on the revelation that we received about the gospel. Now, what is revelation in terms of our own testimony? What would you do if someone were to say to you, God told me such and such? God told me such and such. Right? People have said that. And look at and, and you know, the way Paul uses the word revelation. He says not only did he receive the gospel through revelation, but he said he received a revelation uh, for his second trip to Jerusalem. He went because of a revelation. What is he talking about? Now, I, I know that the idea of receiving a revelation, uh, we think of some sort of dramatic, uh, maybe a kind of a, a mystical experience, maybe a dream uh, after a period of fasting, something like that, right? That you have this sort of... Um, lightning bolt kind of moment where you have this uh, new insight or, or perception. Um, maybe you think of revelation as some sort of a secret uh, about the future that you are given uh, special information about. Um, 
you know, it's almost like um, Paul is being given like directions about going to Jerusalem, like it's an it's an app or something. But you, know, you should you know go now. But I don't want to suggest that God cannot operate that way. That God can continue to speak to us in such a powerful and direct way. But it seems to me that for most of us, for most of the time, a better way to think about the idea of revelation and receiving revelation is to think of revelation simply as communication from God. It's simply a word from God. And more specifically, I would say, revelation is when God opens our eyes, when God opens our hearts to see something true about him that we didn't know before. Revelation is God's communication to us about himself. Revelation is when we somehow now understand or see or believe something true about God that we didn't know before. Most importantly, uh, as it has been said before, Christian revelation is fundamentally relational, not informational. Revelation is primarily relational, not informational. That is, we, other people may associate revelation with new information, new insights, but for us, biblical revelation is always and foremost a person. It's a person. It involves knowing God and knowing God in a deeper personal sense. It's not discovering new information about God. It's about knowing God in a personal sense. Right? So, so when, you, when you learn about some new doctrines about God or you have some abstract notions of God, that, that's fine and that's good. But that's not the kind of revelation we're talking about here. Of course, we need to learn facts and information and so on. But the Christian life in its essence is not about information. It's about the relational aspect of what it is to know God. As just as Paul experienced, that kind of knowing comes through the will of God. As God reveals himself to us. And so in that sense, we always have to have a humble posture toward revelation about God because it is given to us. It's not something that we figure out or earn or learn. It's, it's a gift. And, and how does that process ordinarily take place? Well, for us, God reveals himself in a myriad of ways through the community, maybe through a dream, through some healings. But for us, as Reformed believers, we appeal first and foremost to the revelation of Jesus Christ in Scripture. God's revelation comes to us through Jesus Christ in the Scriptures. Uh, The great theologian Karl Barth was once asked after a series of lectures he gave at Princeton Seminary uh, back in the early 60s, he was asked this question, whether God is revealed in other religions or in Christianity only. And Barth is reported to have replied, God is not revealed in any religion, including Christianity. God is revealed only through his son, Jesus Christ. It's what Jesus told Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And so if we're going to know God, then we have to know Jesus. And how do we 
get to know Jesus? First of all, primarily, foremost, is through scripture. Because that's where he's revealed. You cannot know God apart from Jesus Christ. And you cannot know Christ apart from the scriptures. This is the aim of revelation, to know God. And genuine revelation leads to this personal knowledge of God. And I think this is where, you know, it's, it's hard to say because, you know, revelation, how do you know if this revelation is true or that revelation is true? And so for us, our appeal goes back to scriptures. As Paul says, this, this is the revelation. And so our confidence comes not because, you know, we're smart enough to figure this out, but at some level there has to be this trust, this received truth that this is the truth. And genuine revelation, I think, if you want to know for yourself, you'll see that it typically will lead to praise and worship. That's how you know, I think, that you really genuinely receive uh, revelation. When you catch a glimpse of God's immensity or God's goodness, uh, you can't help but respond in praise or thanksgiving or worship. Then you know you receive the word from God, a revelation. You know, if, if you come to church, for example, or you uh, listen to a sermon or do a Bible study, and at the end of it you go, hmm, that was pretty interesting. And then you go on and nothing changes. You just learn something new about a passage and that's it. That's not revelation. That's not what it's for. That's not what scriptures are for. That's not what the sermon is for. It ought to lead to praise, to thanksgiving, and to worship. That's what the people heard when they heard Paul's testimony and the revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They praised God. That's what Paul discovered. And and I I can tell you, you know, um, not today, but that's my story too, right? That when, when that word, like I recognize the word, and all of us, right? When you recognize the word, the truth of the word, it leads to praise, to, to worship. And that experience is one we have to just repeat over and over again. Because you know, one day you don't get it, and all of a sudden you get it. Um, there's no other explanation. But it's the revelation of God. It's the will of God. It's the grace of God. And that's the nature of grace. And I hope that's something that you'll continue to discover. Uh, let's pray together. God, we, um, we are grateful for your word. We're thankful that we have your word, this revelation given to us. That in Jesus Christ, we have your word, your final word, your promise to us. And we have come to trust and to believe this word. God, would you make this word more certain in our lives, to trust you more, to believe your word more, and to bear witness of that truth. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.